Welcome to lesson six, refreshing relationships, remodeling our approach to love and relationships. So I want to begin with these two cups. If I will ask you, what are these cups share in common? They can hold fluid. Right. Or okay. solid. Yeah. Very good. So the the goal of this course is to move to more positive living and move from um, from negative uh, emotions and because we are social creatures therefore relationships is it can lead to both you know it could be the greatest cause of negative emotions it could be the greatest um, you know influence to our positive emotions so I guess this being the last lesson is kind of, you know... This is the last one? Yeah. So it's it's taking all the emotions that we spoke about. We spoke about inauthenticity, uh, guilt, shame, inadequacy, happiness, pain, suffering. And now we kind of get to the, the ultimate of the positive or negative emotions. And that is relationships. Because all those emotions that we spoke about, they're all from within. These are, so to speak, from without. And we're going to learn how really um, it's very different. The way the, the Tanya, the way the Hasidic philosophy looks at relationships that can really give us a uh, healthy guide for relationships. So let's, because we want to make everything practical, let's look at exercise 6.1, page 224. Think of an individual in your life with whom you would appreciate applying the relationship insights you will gain in this lesson, in the session. B, record three things you have in common with this individual. And then record three of the most obvious differences between you. So in summary, the emotions triggered by our relationships have a profound effect on our well-being. So today we're going to unveil an approach to establish a sustaining, strong, and a healthy relationship. So now, let's begin with a thought-provoking question on relationships in general. Question for discussion, page 225. Theoretically, are any two random people capable of having a good relationship with each other? Theoretically. Theoretically. Okay. <laughs> so let's look at the Talmud's perspective on text 1a. Before we get there, um, this is a very complex uh, um, part in the Talmud. And we're going we're gonna to focus on what we you know, what what is regarded for us, and and the topic is marriage. Now, it's not because this lesson is going to be on marriage; it's because marriage is probably the ultimate relationship. But of course, um, this works for any relationship. It's not just marriage. Just the Talmud takes this idea as of comp com compatibility, um, right? So, it, meaning if you 
if you are able to uh, unlock the door of, of marriage relationships, then you for sure have enough power to open less intimidating doors. Okay, so let's begin with text 1a. Go for it. Heaven matches a woman to a man according to his deeds. Therefore, it is as difficult to successfully match a couple as it was to split the Red Sea when rescuing the Jews from Egypt. As it is stated, God settles solitary individuals together in a home. He brings out those who were imprisoned in chains, Psalm 68, 7. Is that true? Did Rabbi Yehuda not repeat in the name of Rav 40 days before an embryo is formed, a divine voice declares, this woman is destined to be married to this man? Nevertheless, the original statement is not problematic, for the latter teaching speaks of a first marriage, whereas the former statements, statement speaks of a second marriage. Right? So what, what this uh, text is saying is that the first marriage, it's more like predetermined, you know, as, as it's called soulmates, which sounds like romantic, but what it really means is that God shows or the, it's predetermined, basically. So the people can date, can agonize and talk and blah, 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 argue. But ultimately, that's the, 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 the you know, predetermined. It's not really based on their deeds. Second marriage is based on their deeds. Now, this doesn't mean that the first one is going to be a good marriage. The second one is going to be a bad marriage. Actually, you know, many times it's actually the opposite. But what it really means is that the first marriage is soul determined which means if people are not living according to their souls then it might be that their marriage is not going to work out but the second marriage means that it's really about their deeds and therefore and this is where the the Talmud says that it, it is as hard as splitting the sea so it sounds like the Talmud is proposing that matching two people is very very difficult and now let's look at, um, right, so that's, that was the question for discussion. Does this Talmudic reading shed light on the question of comp compatibility between random individuals? It sounds like the Talmud is saying is very, very difficult to find two individuals who can find a harmonious relationship. Why is this so? And text 1b Rabbi Yehuda Lowe, which is, he's very famously known as the Maharal of Prague, he explains why is it very difficult to match people. And of course, even more men and women, because they're so different. Okay. Jeanette, would you, would you like to read 1B? Sorry. <laughs> Successfully, pairing a couple is as difficult as splitting the Red Sea. It requires a tremendous feat to split an entity that is intrinsically one, such as C, into two distinct parts. It's a similarly spectacular feat to join two entities that are in essence dis distinct. The quoted verse states, God settles Yechidim, solitary individuals, together in a home. The term Yechidim implies singularity, which is utterly dissimilar and distinct from the other. Nevertheless, God settles them together and merges them into a single entity, just as sea splitting sunders something indivisibly singular 
So is it equally challenging to create a unified entity, Arab entities that are essentially distinct as a man and a woman? So what we're saying is, basically, naturally, we are individuals, individualistic, meaning naturally we're all looking for ourselves, looking out for ourselves, and therefore it's very difficult to overlook differences and you know, com- find you know, common ground and, and, and keep, keep it that way you know, for a long time. So the question is, yes, you know, we could, we have people that find common ground and they have, they succeed in relationship, but really what we're asking is, what we're saying is, according to this, this text, is that relationships are really a miracle. Really, naturally, we, we like to stay in our own, you know, to take out, to look out for ourselves. And, uh, and therefore, it's, it is very, very hard. Now, the question is, how do we make that miracle happen? So now, we're going to look at how generally uh, relationships work. And then we're going to look at the, what's the, you know, the, the next step, so to speak. So let's look at the slides for a moment. So the first marriage is preordained. The second marriage is the splitting of the sea. It's according to deeds. That's why it's very hard. You know, to, to compact, co, com, how do you say? Compatibility. How do you say the verb? Oh. To com, combine. Combine. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so how are they similar? Just like it's hard to split and it's hard to join, just like the water is hard to split. So it is unnatural to divide, unnatural to unite. Except for the Cohen. You only have one marriage. The Cohen. Well, no, they they could uh, they could marry someone. They could have a second marriage. It's not the same person or a divorce see. Well, if it's not a divorcee, you can marry them. Oh. So. Okay, so how do people bond? Oh, so that's the next. So how do relationships exist? So at first glance, how do relationships work? People find common ground. We, yes, we are different. It's very hard to unite us. So we find what unites us. So it could be common likes, common views, common interests. So this is the very, very uh, common uh, reason for relationships. People find common ground and common views, common goals. And of course, the less trusted path is appeal. You know, they like their looks, they like their money or whatever that is. So that, that is, of course, not a great, um, you know, not a great idea for, it's not really going to last very long. And now we're going to go into a very interesting text number two. Um, text number two is going to start giving us an idea of what is the ultimate in the relationship. So how do people bond? A, common interests or appeal. Yeah, they have a great hairline. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's look, look at text number two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. Any love that is dependent on something, this is the ethics of the fathers. Any love that is dependent on something, 
when the thing ceases, the love also ceases. But a love that is not dependent on anything never ceases. What is an example of a love that is dependent on something? That is a love of Amnon for Tamar. And what is the example of a love that is not dependent on anything? The love of David and Jonathan. Now, this is the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is not, you know, a, a book. A Mishnah is a book of laws. So if the Mishnah finds it, finds a reason to give you an example, it's not just because, oh, you know, I'm going to give you an example. It's because it's specifically when it wants you to learn something from those, these two stories. So the first story is a pretty sad, very sad one. It was, two, the, both of the stories are kind of in the same generation. One is David, King David and Jonathan, and who is his brother-in-law. And Amnon and Tamar were two half-siblings. half-siblings. They were both children of David from different mothers. Now, what happened? Amnon was very, very attracted to Tamar, his half-sister. And one day he has a whole plan. He makes himself believe that he's sick. And he says, oh, I want Tamar to help me. And then he violates her. And it says in the, in, the, in the Tanakh that after that, he started hating her and he was disgusted. And then, well, then the story is that he gets uh, revenge. He gets killed. But because of this, that's one of the reasons that the, the, the sages apply all the, the laws of Yichud. That's one of the reasons. That's one of the causes. The second story is King David... Well, he was, before he was king, he was, very, he was very charismatic. He defeated Goliath, so he was very you know, famous, so to speak. Who was Jonathan? Jonathan was the son of the king then. Who was the king? King Saul. King Saul, King Shaul, he was David's father-in-law. And he realized that David is going to be the next. So he wanted to take care of that, and he wanted to kill David great family story so he Shaul tries to ki kill David a bunch of times and who helps David Shaul King Shaul's own son that is Jonathan now you would think Jonathan is the son of the king that means he is the one that's worthy you know that's going to be the next king and the last thing he would do is help someone who's contending for the throne so why would so what Jonathan did was something really, you know, unexplainable that he went completely against his self-interest because he really had a genuine, non-dependent, non-contingent love for David. He had, first of all, Jonathan was very, very uh, worthy of a, being a king. He was great. He had great military experience. He was uh, the head of the of the you know the judicial court. So he was. You know, he had all the qualities, but he knew that King David was more fit for the throne. And yet, he, was, he really saved David's life a couple times. So that, these are the two stories. And we're going to see now that even though both, both of the stories, both of the motivation, why did Amnon, what, what was Amnon motivated from or yeah, what was his motivation? What was Jonathan's motivation? It was both love, technically. But the critical distinction is that Amnon, Amnon's love 
was dependent on Tamar's beauty. That he was, it was based on appeal. Once he got rid of that beauty, that's it. There was no, nothing more to depend on love. The, the love, love was not dependent anymore on, on beauty because you know, he got rid of it. That, that's why he, you know, he couldn't stand her anymore. But Jonathan's love for David wasn't contingent, wasn't dependent on something. It's not like he wanted to be second to the king. He really did it for because he appreciated and loved David, and and that is the love that we're 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 going to talk about that is not dependent. Which means, um, it was not based on something superficial. It was based on essential love. Did you say selfish and selfless? Right. Okay. Definitely. That's exactly the, the difference. Amnon's, Amnon's love was very selfish. It was all about you know his attraction. Therefore, once he got rid of it, that's it. There was no more love. Because he got he you know he he enjoyed the, the selfish part, that's it, no more. But because Jonathan's love was really selfless, he really loved him. For, for who he was, therefore it was, you know, it was non-changing. So that's where what, what comes out of this is the even though common ground love, definitely a appeal-based love, is even though sorry even though common ground love could succeed, how can someone make it make it work? Is because you have to work very, very hard on always kind of, you know, suppressing all of our differences and always trying to focus on our common ground, common ground, common ground. But it's very hard. Appeal definitely, you know, is very, very hardly, you know, continues. Why? Because things change when we, when we are in our, you know, in our young, younger age, we don't really think so much about education about you know different things that change in life we get older and now we have suddenly we have very different you know very different views very different suddenly our common ground is over overshadowed by more important things that come in the way so yes maybe we both like pizza but right now there's more important things you know how we're going to educate our kids and all those things so um, the truth is, when people suppress their, you know, when people focus on their common ground and they suppress their differences, what they're really doing is not really merging into one. What they're doing is they're still being individualistic. It's kind of a coexisting. It's two individual univer you know, uh, universes coexisting together. By basically limiting their the the friction that's be, be, between them, their differences, for the sake of a shared benefit or interest, but this is not the miracle that we're talking. <clears throat> Thank you. So, well, this is not what we're what we're aiming at. You know, we're saying we want a good relationship. It's something that's based on non-contingent things. So, how do we operate? Between a selfless bond or a central bond. So let's look at the slides. So Amnon's love was based on physical beauty, and therefore it was superficial and fleeting. It was not 
didn't last. Jonathan's love was a soul bond and therefore was unshakable. Why? Because our soul never really changes. That's, that's the difference. Our body, our self, our self-interest, our self-orientation changes with time. But, all right, so that's what we're saying. Dependent love is that the problem is that common interests can change or more important interests can emerge. So now, successful relationship on dependent love is either you keep focusing on similarities or you and you suppress bothersome feelings. Question is, how do we upgrade our relationships? So now, now that we know, you know, from this whole course, we know that we have two spiritual forces inside of us. We have two identities. Of course, the same, the same, you know, the same recipe is going to work over here. As we said until now, all the causes of our negative emotions, all of our problems really come from a, uh, a self-oriented, um, self-oriented identity. And the more we move towards a mission-oriented identity, the, the less space we have for negative emotions. So this, the same thing works with relationships. It's pretty obvious and a little bit, a little bit counter, counterintuitive, but ego is a very bad idea for relationships. As we've seen text number three. Two people who are ego-centered are not likely to get along. An ego-centered person is one who believes that what he or she wants, desires, prefers, values, or believes is good, right, and true, and therefore that others should share the same subjective states as he or she does. If one individual is ego-centered while the other is not, there is a greater chance that the relationship will last, but it is not likely to be a very functional relationship. This is because sooner or later, even very tolerant people tend to become wary of constantly appeasing a self-centered person. So, what we're saying is, of course, we, we, we need to activate our divine soul perspective. Why, why is it the natural soul not very good for relationships? Because, so this is a, not a you know, particularly accurate Example, but it, it, it you know it gives you the, the right picture. So, according to the natural soul, you know in, in science there's always the question of relativity: who who is in the center? What is in the center? What is circling the other? So, according to the natural soul, we are in the center, and therefore everybody is you know go, going around me. So, because if I am the center of the world and you are your center of the world, then of course we are basically perpetually in competition because I'm the center of my, my world, you're the center, and, and basically, you know, anything that happens, it's kind of like seven billion different experiences because we all have, we all believe that we are in the center according to our cell, you know, our, our natural soul. And therefore, naturally we're in competition. And even when we say common ground, let's say, let's use the example of pizza, 
common ground, what does it really mean? Am I enjoying you eating pizza or I'm just enjoying myself eating pizza? And I enjoy you eating pizza in my company so I can, it's just an extension of my enjoyment of my experience of my pizza. Meaning, so that, according to the natural soul, there's never really, doesn't exist such a thing as common ground. It's still just both of us working for our own interest and we're just, you know, extending our ego. So our natural soul is naturally a barrier for, for good relationships. What does the, nat- the godly soul say? Who is the center of the world? God. And therefore, because it's not about me, if, if it's about me, then I, I get annoyed, you know, because you're in my competition. But if it's not about me, if not, if the godly soul is not about me either. The godly soul is about Hashem, it's about God, my mission. And therefore, not necessarily, I mean, if you bother me just because you have, you're different than me, if I'm about my mission, then if you're part of my mission, so let's go. We're, you know, we're both, we're both in the same, going in the same direction. So, according to the godly soul, we, we are really one. We're not really, like, the, the natural soul is, we're, we're not just spatially different people. You know, we, we everyone uh, occupies different, you know, space. But conceptually, we're, we're separate. We're, we're, we're different, not only in, in, in space, we're, we're conceptually separate. You know, I'm about me, you're about you, and that's it. You know, I can help you, you can help me, but it's all still within me looking, viewing everything as be, me being in the center of the world. But once you, you shift and you start moving towards, I'm not, I'm not the center of everything. My, my mission is the center of everything. My mission is what really measures what's important and what's not. Therefore, we can, we can really understand that we're all in the same, we're all in the same, uh, and by the way, we're going to say later, so let's look at the slides a second. We're going to say later, if someone is actually um, bothering your mission, so you, you know, pushing that away, it's not... What we're trying to say over here is that, you know, a lot of people like to focus on love, 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 love. The truth is that if you don't hate anything, you don't really love anything. Meaning, hate is the other coin of love. If you love, you know, someone then you don't like things that bother him or her. Mm-hmm. If you, if you uh, just love everything, oh, I love everything, then you don't, really, you don't really love anything. And that's you know, a big mis- misconception. So according to the godly soul, it's not that the godly soul only knows love. The godly soul is all about mission. So I have space, I don't really have space, I can have a, a, a healthy relationship with someone because I... It's not just I don't focus so much on our differences, but I understand we're, we're, we're going toward the same mission. But if that someone is bothering my mission and is, and is going against my mission, then it's only legitimate that I, I can't stand this person because he's, he's obstructing my mission. So from the godly soul, the godly soul is saying, okay, you're not my mission, bye. I'm going to, you know, goodbye. So the natural soul perspective, my relationship is about myself. 
and your interests compete with mine. We're always in competition. I mean, I can say, so it's, for me, it's very uh, practical, but there, there are people in, in, uh, that, that work in the same... Uh, I remember when I was working a specific, um, whatever, religious institution, so there was someone else there that I always viewed as competition, and we, we were very different, but it was very hard to, to have a relationship with him. I just you know, avoided him because he was just annoying, and he was, I always viewed him as a competition. So the, if I would focus more on, hey, if I'm about my mission, let him have whatever he wants. You know, it's, it's not about me. And your interests reinforce mine. That's all about from the natural soul perspective. From the divine soul perspective, my life is about purpose. And we, if we share a purpose, then you, I have space for you. So, so the nat- from the natural soul perspective, we are biologically and conceptually divided. From the divine soul perspective, we are branches of the same reality. So it, and, and this is, again, I, as I always say, it's not all or nothing. What we're saying is the more you focus on, the more you, let's just focus, but the more you align your perspective towards, the more you push yourself towards the, the, the godly soul perspective, the more you, in other words, very simply, the more you care about your godly soul, the more you're going to care about other godly souls, and therefore, the more you're going to care about your mission, and therefore, the less, you know, the less the differences are going to matter or, or bother you because you're about your mission. If this is my mission, it's like we said, you know, if my flaws, once you understand that your flaws are your mission, then I'm going to embrace them. Okay, so one day my mission is like this. Right now my mission is to accept my flaws and struggle against them so that okay i accept it so that is so let's look at text number four um what we're saying over here is what's very um what's very unique is what we're going to say now is that what changes your relationship is not so much how you view others but it's how you view yourself if you view yourself as a natural soul as a self-oriented person only, then you're going to have you know, a lot of work to do when you're in your relationships. But the more you focus, you view yourself as, hey, I'm not just a self-interested interested person. I have a godly soul. I have a part of me that is mission-oriented. The more you focus on that, the more, the easier it's going to be our relation, in our relationships. Okay, text number four, Jeanette. Sorry, should I, should I read or? <laughs> Don't know what's happening. <laughs> Acting on the suggestion mentioned above, to view one's body with scorn and contempt and to find joy in the joy of the soul alone is a direct and easy way to fulfill the commandment. Love your fellow as yourself. Towards every soul of Israel, from the greatest to the smallest. 
for physical and material considerations no longer erect barriers between us, now that we disdain and loathe the body. And as for spiritual disparities caused by variations in the soul and spirit, well, who can even know their true greatness and worth as they rooted and source in the living God? Moreover, all souls are truly equal and all have one father to the point that all Jews are referred to as actual brothers because of the single source of the souls the one God is only the, our bodies that separate us. Consequently, those who prioritize the bodies while considering their souls to be less significant cannot experience true love and brotherhood. They can only experience love that is contingent on non-essential factors. So the, the first thing I want to say about the when he says to scorn the body, he's not saying our physical bodies. Our bodies are very important to our, our you know, to our life and to our mission. But we're saying our bodily desires, which means our just self-interested uh, desires. What we're saying is, it, it's, it's amazing if you think about it. If your body is your priority, then you're going to have a very hard time with relationships. The more your soul is a priority in your life, I mean, just take a very simple example. Okay, there's this guy... Very arrogant, very annoying. You know, I, I just, I don't like him. Now, I don't like him because what am I looking at? He's external, he's external, he's, you know, external bodily personality. It's very external. So I say, oh, he's arrogant. I don't like him. But if I, what am I saying really? I'm saying I view myself my, I, you know, of course, I like my personality. I mean, okay, thank God. I like my personality, and I'm not arrogant. Oh, thank you. And I'm not arrogant, so I don't like someone who's different, who's arrogant. Now, if I stay in this, then I'm always going to have to, if I want to be, if I want to have a relationship with him, then I'm always going to have to be, you know, common ground, common ground, common ground, but I still hate this arrogance. And I, so what I need to do is, one second, if I'm not only a body, not only a natural soul, I have a godly soul, and he also has a godly soul, what is a godly soul all about? It's about God, it's about our mission. Now, he has a mission, I have a mission, we're both going, we, we both have a mission that's going to get us to, toward, you know, towards God. So really, we're in the same team. And the more I focus that he, because I don't know how, his soul is, I don't know, our, all of our souls are special. Mm -hmm. So I can't say, oh, he's worse than me because he's arrogant. No, but how do you know? Maybe, yeah, that's just the personality. But what about beyond that? Mm -hmm. So if you focus on your godly soul, then you can go beyond that. And A, you start getting rid of that, you know, that hate, so to speak, or that dislike. And what you really awaken him is... For him to start, you know, focusing and prioritizing his soul, and then that automatically is going to help him to be less arrogant. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're saying over here. The more, so this is what we're saying: those who, the more we prioritize our bodies and consider our soul less significant, it's very hard to experience real love because it's always going to be about me. 
And love, by, defi by definition, is about others. If it's, if it's, I love myself, it's very hard for me to love others. To love others, I need to be, have something within me that's beyond me, that's beyond myself. So, to, um, so going back to the, you know, the question of the cups, like you said, they both contain fluid. Inside, they both have water. They have the same thing. So, what, when, if we realize that our bodies are just containers, okay, you, container, what does it matter? This has, this has designs, this has, it's all white, this is uh, uh, foam. Containers are just containers, but really, what really matters is what we have inside. That's our soul. So the more we look at ourselves, not just in our external way, but we, the more we look at ourselves, the more we view ourselves, hey, I have a soul. Hey, I have a identity inside of me that is mission-oriented. And it's not only about myself. The more I can look at others like that, and the more I, have, I can have true love and care for others because they're part of my mission. Not because we have a common, something common which we explain that there's nothing really in common. As long as it's about your natural soul, it's always going to be what is common, like I like soccer, you like soccer. So we, I really like soccer, and I like my experience with soccer. So we're both going to enjoy soccer at the same time. But it's not really common, because we're always about ourselves. We're always about that we are in the center. So would it be the opposite if like Luca didn't like soccer, but she went to soccer because you like soccer, and so she sat with you? So that, yeah. honestly... Well, it, it's that could be that could be because soccer is not essentially something I need for my mission. It's more of a my self interest. So that would be that she's suppressing her desires for my for my interest. But she's just being an extension of me. Mm. It's not really because it's not about our mission. <laughs> what if she wasn't about? I mean, I know just. Theoretically, yeah, yeah. not her mission was like not about anything that was your mission. <laughs> like she was selfish, which we all know she isn't. But what if she was and just but, like I'm just gonna do whatever I want? So well, that 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 will be that that is why relationships are so hard mm -hmm. because I'm selfish. I'm selfish too. Boom, boom, boom. You know mm -hmm. they fight all the time. But would that be you also mentioned if somebody is in like putting obstructions for your mission, then that person shouldn't, that's not right. assisting you. That's not a right. good thing. So the, the, if really these two people are not, they're not, you know, well, the, the problem is also most people are not mission focused. That's, mm -hmm. that's our, not our natural. Yeah. But if once one, one of the people becomes mission focused and this person is really not, uh, you know, helping his mission, then there are considerations. Now, I don't know exactly sometimes that the, the friction, I, that, this is why the power of, I think, the, the power of, of the Torah to say, for example, we know that in Christianity there's no concept of divorce. There is if the Pope, whatever, whatever. So why? And, and really it's, it's kind of, 
why, or the question is, why is there a concept of divorce in Judaism? And the answer is because it could be sometimes that, you know, the other person is not mission-focused. One person is mission-focused. And you keep, so to speak, uh, you say, okay, you know what? He's not mission-focused, but maybe my mission is to be with a non-mission-focused person. Right. And then, but, but you keep, basically, like we said in that text, you keep serving his ego. Right. You say, oh, I'm mission-focused, mission-focused, but he still doesn't get it. Right. Then, okay, that's why there's a concept of divorce, because... Yeah. This person is just miserable for my mission, and therefore, you know, goodbye. Yeah. But there, there are, you know, there are definitely, you know, considerations that maybe. It's not a case by case. <laughs> right, because like someone once asked uh, the rabbi, he said, it was this uh, lady, this girl that she, her parents were divorced. Mm-hmm. So she said, you know, why, why did, why did God have to? Why, why did they have to get married in the first place if they would get divorced? So I said, listen, not, God is not always very romantic. You know, not everything is always, you know, rosy and, and, and nice. But perhaps, he said, I don't know exactly what's in God's mind, but perhaps you had to be born. Yeah. So maybe sometimes people get divorced because they're not on their mission, you know, they're not mission focused and they... They just don't want to live with the common ground thing. They don't want it suppressed, so they just forget it. Yeah. But, you know, there's... Yeah. There's, uh, there's always something part of it. There's yeah. a reason for it. Yeah. Okay. So, the more we look at our bodies and our personalities as containers, and what really matters is our mission, is our soul. Um, and in our soul, we're all one. We're all in the same mission. We're all in the same, in the same direction, going in the same direction. Therefore, it's much easier to to have healthy relationships. And, and that is really the, the lesson from the story of David and Jonathan. That is the non-contingent love. Because it's not about me. It's about my mission. My mission, like we said in the previous lesson, the rabbi that was in Siberia in the camps, and he was happy. Why? Because if my life is about my mission, then I can fulfill my mission anywhere I am, any, anywhere, anytime, any 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 circumstance so the same thing because if you focus on your mission that never changes you always have a mission and therefore it's not contingent it's not going to change yeah. or the mission changes but the mission is always there yeah. so to look at, at text number five if my primary identity is the I my sense of tangible being, then I cannot experience true unity with my fellows. However, if my life and sense of self are in accordance with my essential identity, my divine soul, then I love my fellows just as I love myself, literally. Because the other isn't an other. He or she is me. Because we're both, in, we have a mission. As a result, the more I sense myself, the greater the barrier between me and my fellows. Conversely, the more I sense my soul, the more I will love others. That is why the commandment to love our fellows is the one mitzvah which is most reflective and expressive of a person's general spiritual state. That's why when, uh, there's a very famous story in the Talmud, this fellow came to Hillel, the sage Hillel, and said, please teach me the entire Torah on one foot. So he told him, he literally, he really told him, don't do 
To others, what you don't like to be done to yourself. But in other words, you were saying, love your fellows yourself, everything else is commentary. What do you mean? The entire Torah is, love your fellows yourself, and by, with the Hasidic perspective, we understand. Because what is ultimately the purpose of doing a mitzvah? Is about my life being more focused on my mission-oriented soul than my self-oriented soul. So ultimately, what is the ultimate result of living a mission soul life is you can love others. Is you're able to love others because you're you're not limited by your limited self, by your self-oriented perspective. You 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 you're focused on your mission. It's about God, it's about my mission, and therefore I can really love others. I have I have space for everyone in my mission. And that is why loving your fellows yourself is ultimately is the one mitzvah that really shows you that a person is more mission soul focused than self-oriented soul. So now again, um, right, so the self-perception is self-focused. If you're self-focused, oh, so what we're saying over here now is that we think that who needs to change? The other. You know, if the more I view others in a different way, then the more I can love them. But if you're so focused, you understand that we're all really one. And therefore, the more you view yourself as a soul and therefore as a mission-oriented person, the more you have, you are realize that everyone is one with you. Now, I want to, because we don't have so much time, so I want to, um, we can read text number six. No, so let's look at the area and rationale on figure 6.1, 233. So again, we proved for the sixth time that also in the area of relationships, the rationale is the more you focus on our central divine bond, makes us ultimately compatible because we all have a mission. And now you, you can think to yourself, okay, I understand now what is the key to you know, a profound and deep relationship. What about all my past relationships that they were not on that level? Do I start from scratch? So the Rebbe has a very interesting thought specifically on the two stories of Amnon and Tamar and David and Jonathan that really give us, give us a, a lesson specifically about that. So let's look at text number six. Okay. Yeah. Our sages cite the case of Amnon and Tamar as an example of love based on specific considerations. In truth, there was an essential love present in that case as well because Amnon and Tamar were siblings. As close family members, they should have experienced a closeness for each other that was independent of any particular consideration. Nevertheless, the love expressed in that incident was dependent on a consideration, namely physical beauty. As a result, when the reason for that contingent love was removed, the love vanished altogether, taking the natural sibling bond along with it. 
This demonstrates that the critical factor is not the origins of the love, but rather the form that the love assumes at the present moment. Our sages then cite the case of David and Jonathan, which presents an opposite scenario because the love between them was originally an external friendship. Despite that, we observe that once the bond deepened to the point that it became an essential love, the verse 1 Samuel 18.1 describes as a, uh, it as a bond of soul to soul. Why? It even affected Jonathan's kingship, for he readily gave up his role as the future king to David. Despite all the greatness associated with monarchy, he abdicated in favor of David because his love was an essential love. This illustrates the opposite extreme. They were originally attracted to each other's specific qualities, for one cannot love a person instantaneously upon first meeting. Genuine bonding is a process. The parties must first become acquainted, then sit down to talk, and eventually they can develop their relationship to the point that it is no longer reliant on particular considerations. For even a non-essential love can blossom into a non-dependent love. Very cool. The love of and Tamar started as a, a real bond, you know, a sibling bond. And then it went bad. It downgraded. The love of Jonathan and David began as a very, you know, very normal love. They, 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 they were friends, you know, friends. They, they had specific qualities that they liked about, about each other. And then it became an essential bond. So like, for example, I, I, I can think of, I had a friend that we were in yeshiva together, rabbinical college, and, and at one stage he became depressed and he, he, he left everything. So for me it was very hard because we were in the same, you know, in the same page, and it was really hard for me to, to be on the same level of, of, of love, so to speak, because now he rejected everything that we, we were friends about. So what that required of me is to, to go on the soul relationship. Because even though we had a good friendship, but it was ultimately, it was dependent on something. It was dependent on our common ground. Yeah. We, were, we were coming from the same place. We grew up in the same place. So we had common ground. As, as, as fine, you know, it was no problem. It wasn't appeal or anything. Mm -hmm. We were discussing the same things. We, we came from the same city and we went to the same school. But once that was away then I had to go deeper. I had to realize that I have to go... In, in fact, possibly him leave, leaving, uh, you know, religion and everything, possibly for me, it was a, a perfect example of my mission. My mission was now to go to a deeper level of love, of real love, of a love that, that dependent, you know, dependent on mission. And probably the more I'm, I'm, I'm going to show him that I, I'm about mission... That's going to remind him that he's also got a mission. Yeah. Anyway, so Amnon's love was initially essential, and ultimately it was dependent. Jonathan's love was in, initially external, and ultimately became essential. So we, it doesn't matter what it was in the past. What matters is what we can always upgrade it. Now, um, we're not going to read the, the text number seven, but basically this course is based, or this class today, is based on chapter 32 in the Tanya. So, something very interesting, that in the first draft, or in all the drafts of the Tanya, chapter 32 was not in the Tanya. 
And if you, if you look at the chapters 31 and 33, you could see a flow without the chapter 32, which means it still makes sense, the whole flow, without chapter 32. Now the question is, two questions. Why didn't he have chapter 32 in the first drafts? And why did he include it in chapter 30, in, in the final draft? So first of all, 32 in Hebrew means lev, which means heart. And the first reason, the reason why he, he was thinking, the Alter Rebbe was thinking of not putting it in, was because unlike other books, you know, like self, self-help books, they say, okay, now we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about this, and then we're going to talk about this. What the Alter Rebbe was saying in the first ch- 31 chapters, the Alter Rebbe is saying, is teaching you how to live a mission-focused life. That the more you're mission-focused, the more you're happy, the more you're positive, the more you have, you know, less space for negative emotions. Now, naturally, you would realize that if you have all those that information, naturally you're gonna love, you're gonna you're gonna have a better better relationships because if you're mission focused, the obvious result is I have more space for others. I can love others despite our differences because I focus on my mission. It's not about me. So that was the reason that he was thinking of not putting it in because it's obvious. It's a, an obvious result. If in the first 31 chapters you get the idea that the more you're mission focused, you're going to be happier. You're not going to have guilt and shame, blah, blah. Ultimately, you understand it's, a, it's an obvious result that you're going to have good relationships because it's not about you. But in the end, he decided to put it in because people would think that you don't have to always, you know, focus, put so much focus on, on love, on loving your fellow and, and relationships. So he decided to put it in to, to not, to, so people shouldn't think that it's not so important to always focus on love and, and focus on relationships. He was saying, you know, whenever you have a, an opportunity, always, you know, talk about it and, and think about it because it, it is very important to, to think about, you know, loving your fellows yourself. Now, this, again, I'm going to go through it fast. Mm-hmm. What we're saying um, in the question for discussion, when might hatred be, in, on page 239, mm-hmm. when might hatred be legitimately, legitimately justified? Can you think of specific examples? So, what we're saying over here basically is that if the godly soul is able to love, it doesn't mean that it can't hate. What we're saying is that hate is a different coin from love, which means if the, the godly soul loves other people because they're part of their mission, then the godly soul can't stand people that are trying to destroy its mission. Now, I don't want to go too much into it because it's... it's, it's um, what he's saying over here basically is that you could hate someone that's destroying your mission only if he's on your spiritual level, only if it's your colleague, you know, a friend, and even and only if you try and try and try to, you know, get them more involved in their mission and they still and you still aren't able to influence them. But otherwise, you can't hate them. You have to um, have compassion and draw them near with love, which means, and this is pretty much nowadays, you know, all these people. For example, I remember someone was saying once, 
there's this fellow, um, he's like a billionaire, a Jew, that he's like a self-hating Jew. Yeah. Right. So someone like him, like, how can you love such a person? He's just giving money to BDS. He hates Israel. He hates Jews. And he just wants to harm Jews. So he's definitely a perfect example. He is there to destroy the mission. Any, any, his mission for sure. His poor soul is trapped. So how can you love such a person? And the answer is, first of all, is he your colleague? No, he's not your colleague. And I, I don't, he's not on my spiritual level. I don't know. And, and therefore, all we can do is, if we have a, a connection with him, is to draw, draw him near. Because hating, you know, it's very easy that it's going to come from yourself, from your self-oriented soul. It's not going to come from your mission-focused soul. Because it's very easy to hate from your, because he's so different and he's harming, you know, he's going against Jews. So it's very easy for us to hate him. But it's not going to do anything, yeah. us hating him, just, just hating him. Yeah. Yes, if someone, you know, we don't have to be fans of, of what he does. But if we have the way, we, can, we have to draw, draw him near, you know. And, and really, you know, hate the fact that he, of his actions and, and have pity. Yeah. All right. So now the real question is, in real life. This, we're coming to the end of, of the course. And now we really have to bring home all these things. Guys, now we're going to look at the things. Initially it was omitted. Ultimately it was included because you, want, you have to always have to have a special emphasis. Okay. Oh, so now look at exercise 6.2 on page 242. Um, look at that 6.2. Look at the negative emotions, positive emotions. So, do you think, at the outset of this course, we presented the following list of negative emotions and asked which you would like to resolve or reduce as a consequence of the course? Um, I can definitely say that I, I have the tools. Not that I'm there, but I definitely have the tools. And hopefully, you know, the more I think about it. And what we're going to say now is really... Oh, interesting this. The story. There's a beautiful story. Two Hasidim. They're talking. And they're complaining about, you know, they're, one of them is complaining to the other, saying, oh, what am I going to do with all my bad choices, my mistakes, my missed opportunities? And the other one says, you know what? I'm not really troubled by my mistakes. I'm really troubled about all the good things that I've done. Because have I done them for the right reasons. So that, that's really the question. Because ultimately life is not only about doing good or doing bad. Life is, is a, from this mission soul. Life is really about myself or my mission. That's ultimately the, the real question. And, and this is it's much more sophisticated. And it's much more nuanced. Because I can do a lot of good things. And they still going to be things I'm just doing them for me. So I never, I never went out of myself. It's all, it's still all about me. So that's the, the real question. And the real purpose of the course is to start doing even the right things, but for the right reasons. Doing it for my mission. And so this is a, a journey 
this is a journey that never really ends. It's a lifetime of a journey. And it's, it's not really, you know, stop doing the things that, that uh, you, know, you can, like we were saying about happiness, you know, you can try again, try again, try again. But if this is not just trying again, this is, a, you know, slowly changing our, our perspective. And therefore, we need reminders. We need reminders to tell ourselves, hey, I know today is a, is, a, is a new day. I need a reminder to remind me that it's not just about good and bad. It's not about, uh, you know, right and wrong. It's about mission or self. So how, how do I remind myself that it's about my mission? And this is really, um, okay, I ask you exercise 6.3, I'm going to give you some ideas. What are some practical activities or behaviors that you can introduce into your lifestyle that will help you have a more divine soul-oriented perspective? 244. So what are things, it could be an activity or a behavior to remind you, hey, it's not about self, It's meaning it's not just about good and bad, it's about self-orientation or selfless orientation or mission orientation, God orientation. So I can give you some ideas. So there's top down or up, um, you know, from down up. So the top down reminders means it's behaviors. Um, for example, Mudani. Okay, so we can read Mudani. Read it in text number 10. Jeanette, your text, uh, 2.45. I offer thanks to you, living and enduring King, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me. Your faithfulness is great. So this is a great way to start your morning. As soon as you wake up, before you do anything, while you're still in bed, you say these words. And what you're saying is, hey, Hashem, God, I'm gonna, I want to be yours today. I want to try to focus on, my, on you and focus on my mission. So that's a good way, and you know it goes a long way because the the first thing that you think in the morning has has a very strong effect, more than the ah and that 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 you know turning off your alarm clock. The next idea is mincha. There are three prayers: the morning and the afternoon and the, the evening prayers. What's very unique about mincha, and it's very like cherished by God, is because it's smack in the middle of the day. So you stop in the middle of the day, you take five minutes, and you pray mincha. What you're saying is, even though today I might have done, you know, self-oriented things, not bad things necessarily, but just I was it just it was all by myself. You take a moment and you think, hey, you know, remember my mission. And also remember that it's not just about my mission, and therefore, I, if I succeed in my mission, I'm going to be Focusing on my mission. It's going to be, we, we explained how really the question is, you know, is it about I have a life or it's the life that I was given? That's ultimately, and, and ultimately this is the, it's going to make you a more positive person, more happy, happy person. Because ultimately the more you focus on your mission, the happier you are. The more you're in tune, you're expressing yourself. And the last thing is study Hasidus. You know, Hasidic philosophy, um, like, the Tanya. like the Tanya, like, like uh, you know, you have tons of material in, in, you know, on the internet, Chabad.org. 
And this is things that remind you about your mission, remind you about your, your focus. They refocus your, uh, your mission. Now, bottom-up reminders is kind of... So the top-down means it's you try to affect your mind and your perspective. Bottom-up reminders are just behaviors. For example, giving charity is saying, you know, it's not only about me. Having a mezuzah, it's reminding you that, you know, there's God. And, for example, Shabbat. Have a nice Shabbat environment. Have a nice Shabbat meal. All these things are, are there to remind you, you know, kind of detach a little bit and, and think, you know. Shabbat is the perfect day to really focus on your mission, to say, hey, it's not just about, you know, accomplishing things. So um, I want to finish with this video, which is very nice, I think. It's, it's very nice. to It's a, like a feel-good story. Um, I think it's very nice. Sarabransky and his wife, Chani, operate a popular Chabad center in Denver, Colorado. While assisting hundreds of individuals on their spiritual journey, they found themselves facing a painful journey of their own. Having children was a dream of ours. All your friends, they've moved on. Everyone's talking about life, the kids, the complaining about the gun, the kindergarten, and the this and the that. And you're just rinse and repeat. Nine years after we married, Baruch Hashem, our son came along. And it was really uh, an unbelievable symptom. There came a time that the doctor sat us down and said, um, based on your file, uh, we think you should make peace with the fact that you're going to have one child in your family. And stop driving yourself crazy. Stop putting yourself in debt. So what do you do? You're right. You're right to the end. The doctors have said that there's nothing more to do. Our journey has ended. Little did they imagine that their resignation was to be dramatically undone by an event that would unfold 8,000 miles away in the Indian state of Maharashtra. Chabad emissaries, Rabbi Gavriel and Rivka Holtzberg, directed the Nariman House Community Center in Mumbai from 2003 until November 2008, when terrorists stormed the building, took hostages, and ultimately murdered the Holtzbergs and their guests, leaving Jewish communities worldwide grappling for a response. Many communities, including that of Marion Station, Pennsylvania, where Rabbi Shraga and Michal Sherman founded Lubavitch at the main line, held emotional memorial events. 300 people came, and a few speakers showed the video of uh, Gabi Mifki, a very moving event to inspire people to do something proactive to bring more Kedusha holiness to the world. One of the attendees, Dr. Michael Glasner, is the co-founder of Mainline Fertility, and an internationally acclaimed pioneering expert on reproductive medicine. The dramatic loss of selfless lives set him thinking. The sermon, the, the conversations, the 
memorial was just so um, moving. So Dr. Glaster, who has the fertility clinic, comes over to me and says, Shraga, and they took five of ours, I'm gonna get five back. And I just said, I'll replace the ones who were lost. So I said, okay, I'll roll it out. Shraga Sherman from Philadelphia is on the phone. Yasi, how are you? Shraga, how can I help you? He says, Yasi, how can I help you? Four days later, I get a phone call from a rabbi from Denver. I sit my wife down. I say, listen, remember we wrote to the rabbi and we said we've done everything we can do? There's a doctor who wants to sponsor one. But when they tell me we still have a dream and then it's a money issue, that shouldn't be there. But four days before the final stage of their treatment, the Sarah Bransky's journey took another unexpected twist. Shabbos, my mother-in-law passes away. Motsi Shabbos, after we hear the news, the first call my wife makes is to the doctor to say, we're canceling. I have a funeral to go to, I have to sit shiver. The doctor says, if I find doctors to monitor you, and you can come at the end of the week, Friday, you'll come back here. So my wife asked her father, and her father said, this is what her mother would want. While receiving treatment, the Sarah Branskys were hosted by the Shermans. It was an incredible opportunity to truly be there for a brother and for a sister in a time when they really needed it. We tried really hard to create a, an emotional space where she could, on the one hand, grieve a loss, at the self-same moment, focus on creating a future. The synergy of those two dimensions coming together, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Nine months later, twins are born. There was medicine that was beyond medicine and there was some divine intervention because on paper they weren't going to get pregnant. Then uh, following up with the OBGYN, they tell us, you know, that uh, after twins, sometimes there can be spontaneous pregnancy and maybe you would consider birth control. And I said, one second. You're saying that after trying for 20 years, we may have a baby naturally. If Hashem wants to give us one for free, <laughs> we're, we're going to say no? Out of this phone call from Shraga Sherman, what was us making peace with having a, a one child, we're now Baruch Hashem have a family of four. But we're a miracle family. My dream is to one day be financially secure enough that I can just do this for free. Because that, that's what breaks my heart, that people don't open the door, don't come in to try. When you start something, you have no idea where it's going to go. My life changed because there was another shliach who picked up the phone and called me. Think, is there some resource I have 
that's beneficial to somebody else. We're part of a big family. And if you have a resource, there's somebody in that family that you can help. And you're the solution to one person's problem. Solve it today. Colorado, Mumbai, Pennsylvania, New York. Worldwide ripples of selfless care, giving, and blessing. Be a part of that chain. Create your own waves. Alright, so let's do the key points. So yeah. I can go from there. <laughs> Alright. Lesson six. Sorry. Rethinking relationships. One. Establishing and sustaining strong and healthy relationships is the key to maintaining positive emotions. Two. It's incredibly difficult, miraculous, for two individuals to form a harmonious relationship. Each person is a universe of his or her own, and two universes cannot become one. Three, most relationships are contingent based on common ground, shared interest or views held by the parties, or they are based on superficial appeal. Contingent relationships risk eventual deterioration or collapse. Four, the miracle of a true lasting relationship is based on essential, non-contingent love. The most effective way to build a lasting relationship on a non-ego model is to activate our divine soul perspective. 5. The divine soul is perfectly primed for relationships for two reasons. A. It's focused on God's plan, not its own. Therefore, another personality and disposition do not contradict or compete with its own. B. Our divine souls are part of a single divine whole. 6. To improve our relationships, instead of focusing on our attitude toward the other party, we should focus on how we view ourselves. Do we identify more with the natural or the divine soul? By changing our self-perspective, the nitty-gritty of most relationships becomes less relevant. 7. Switching to divine soul mode requires a monumental shift in perspective of how one views oneself and one's place in the world. It's imperative to introduce into our daily life behaviors and deeds that assist us in making this shift, staying focused on it. <laughs> 